This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. It's Tuesday, April 26th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Last month, this was the news out of North Korea. North Korea has fired a long-range missile in what Japan is calling an unacceptable act of violence. If that's confirmed, it would be Pyongyang's first intercontinental ballistic missile test since 2017. The reaction? Fire? Fury? No. Formality. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has thanked South Korea's outgoing President Moon Jae-in for his work to restore peace on the peninsula during his term in office. Pyongyang State Media on Friday said North Korean leader Kim Jong-un receives a letter from the South Korean president on Wednesday. Moon Jae-in, term limited, out of office as president of South Korea, is stepping down. Moon had become the first South Korean president to address a North Korean audience in North Korea. He and Kim Jong-un hiked the legendary mountain between the two countries, Mount Baikdu, and held hands on the shores of Heavenly Lake. And it was reflected in cordial, even touching letters revealed last week between Moon, the dovish South Korean, and Kim, who Donald Trump decried as Little Rocket Man. But I analyzed the text of the letters, the actual text, and I wasn't struck by an Elton John, Bernie Taupin vibe. There was something else going on there. Moon emphasized that they needed, the two leaders, needed to use, quote, dialogue to overcome the era of confrontation. And then he wrote, quote, there were moments of regrets and memories of overwhelming emotions. Wait, where have I heard that? It's all coming back to me now. Baby, baby, baby. Moon continued, but I believe that holding our hands together, we have taken a sure step toward changing the fate of the Korean Peninsula. Actually, it sounds so much better in song. But I believe that holding hands, we have taken a step toward changing the fate of the Korean Peninsula. Moon's successor, Jun Suk-yul, has taken a hardline approach to the North, and many fear the progress made under Moon will be lost forever. And nothing underscores the stakes of diplomacy on the Korean Peninsula more than the swell of music, the crescendo of strings hitting G5, an entire octave over Middle C, or this fact. The exchange of friendly letters comes just days after North Korea test-fired a new tactical guided weapon. Moon Jae-in leaves office exactly two weeks from today. On the show, I spiel about not exactly Elon Twitter, but the, I would say, 
almost universal condemnation of Elon Twitter by anyone who doesn't call himself or herself a conservative. But first to Africa, which in the 20 years before this decade saw a decline in coups or coup attempts to only two a year. And while no news is good news when it comes to coups, two is a decline from the decades prior. In 2021, however, six coup or coup attempts were recorded, and 2022 might become the year of the coup with another two. There are over 50 countries in Africa, and each has its own politics and history, but there are some through lines to explain the uptick in unrest. Nathaniel Powell of Oxford Analytica joins me to discuss all these African coups. After a period of relative stability, there have been a series of coups in Africa. In fact, most of them are concentrated in a uh, certain strip of the African continent. Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Guinea, Sudan felt coups. Guinea-Bissau survived a coup d'etat attempt in February. Niger, Niger, as some people call it, experienced a failed attempt last March. What's going on with all these coups? I suspect that there are probably six different answers for six different countries, but we're going to check in with Nathaniel Powell, who wrote France's Wars in Chad, Military Intervention and Decolonization in Africa. He is the Africa analyst of Oxford Analytica. Hello, Nathaniel. Thanks for joining me. Hi, hi Mike. How are you doing? Good. And I just want to get it out of the way because that's what this is what happened in my mind. Wait a minute. Oxford Analytica? Is that the Steve Bannon thing? No, that's Cambridge Analytica. They were just essentially stealing your name. I wonder if uh, that is still traumatizing the organization a little bit. Well, I think there's a bit of anger there, but uh, we're over it. All right. So as I put forth and suspect that there are probably commonalities to all the coups, but it is also the case that every country has its own situation. And so how would you rather do it? Take them roughly one by one, or do you want to start by offering a global explanation to uh, tie these latest coups together? Well, there's, I think you have to distinguish between kind of long-term causes that lead to these coups and then kind of the trigger for each one. And I think what you said before, there's six different triggers. <laughs> yeah. Um, but some of them are, are related to each other uh, and, and need to be talked about. So the long-term causes are the same kind of long-term causes you have in lots of countries throughout the world that have experienced coups. And one of the, one of the main factors is a military that has lots of institutional and political power uh, in the country. Uh, and when the economic situation deteriorates or whether there's a problem with the security situation or there's a lot of corruption and protests in the streets, uh, this is oftentimes an incentive for military leaders to step in claiming that they can manage things better or as a, as a way to avoid, you know, the potential consequences of their own failures. Uh, and you can see these things happening in all the countries we're, we're describing, uh, you've just mentioned that is true, but at least with some of these countries, they were Burkina Faso was a, a slightly pointed to as a, a success story. And those are the conditions that you have laid out. They have obtained for a long time. But there was a thought that many of these countries were moving past that dynamic as their defining essence. Uh, were we just wrong about that? Well, 
Had you asked me 10 years ago, I would have said yes, but there's been some big changes in the past 10 years, and this relates to the real deterioration in the security situation, especially in Mali, but also Burkina Faso, and uh, only to a slightly lesser extent in Niger. Um, and then Chad has seen a recurring series of rebellions since, since its independence in 1960. Uh, so we're talking about countries that, that are, are under stress militarily right now, because in Burkina Faso and Mali and Niger, there are serious jihadist insurgencies mm-hmm. uh, that are challenging state authority throughout large swathes of territory. And Burkina Faso, is, 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 uh, in terms of the percentage of territory that's not controlled by the state, is probably worse or, or is probably larger in Burkina Faso than it is anywhere else. Mm. And there have been a couple of major attacks against Burkina, Burkina Bay military installations that have resulted in, in serious losses in the military, which over time generated lots of kind of discontent and uh, kind of mutinous atmosphere within the, with the armed forces. And then what you had in Burkina Faso, this happened in January, is the same thing you kind of had in some other places where you have uh, uh, some colonels, which are senior officers, but not that senior, right. who have combat experience. They're generally well-trained. They're generally very professional. They've spent time in France, the United States, or elsewhere undergoing military training. Uh, and they get a sense that their superiors who are not as necessarily as well-connected, who have not don't have combat experience because they went through the ranks in the 1970s and 80s where there are no conflicts, and are sometimes corrupt, they see their superiors as being part of the problem. Right. And these colonels, they're younger, they're ambitious, they feel they're thwarted, they do have the skills, they're less invested in the success of the state overall. It's a classic story. Think about Colonel Gaddafi. Well, exactly. And actually, there were a whole wave of coups in the 1960s with colonels ahead of them in Nigeria, I mean, in Libya, obviously, um, in uh, Upper Volta and lots of other places. Upper but, Volta became Burkina Faso. Yeah, uh, yeah in, the, in 1983. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So that's fascinating. But if there is an Islamic insurgency, and that is the explanation, the explanation uh, also has an explanation. Why is there an Islamic insurgency? Well, we saw the rise of this throughout the world, and we saw the power of ISIS, and it's both an ideological. But I would also have to think uh, somewhat of a materialistic promise. There usually aren't very successful insurgencies in countries that are delivering to their people, you know, upper middle class lifestyles. So how much do economics or an economic downturn, how much does that have to play? Well, you're absolutely right. So we're talking, I mean, not just Burkina Faso and Mali, but throughout the region, you have a problem of states, regardless of whether they're kind of formally democratic or not, there's problems with legitimacy. Uh, they don't deliver the goods to people, especially outside of, let's say, major cities or urban areas where there actually is some investment. Uh, they don't deliver the goods to people in the peripheries of the countries, especially in border regions. And on top of that, you have uh, security services that are often quite brutal. Uh, towards uh, any kind of dissent or towards, or th- they themselves are not particularly well supplied. So they try to live off the countryside or live off of the people that they're posted among. Mm. Uh, and there's been lots of indiscriminate violence towards civilians. And this, of course, drives jihadist recruitment. But I think there's kind of, it's important not to look at this as, you know, jihadists coming in from the outside and stirring up trouble. These are fundamentally domestic uprisings against state authority. Mm. And interviews with people that have been captured subsequently or defected kind of point to numerous reasons why people, why people join these groups. And 
at the end of the day, ideology only plays a, a kind of a minor role. Now, does the West, which is which is not just the United States, and I want to get into some of the other traditional colonial powers, but the West so agitated, so concerned about ISIS and uh, Islamic groups when they were operating in the Middle East, and we could certainly understand because of the uh, stretch and reach of these groups affected Americans and American forces. Once they migrate south into sub-Saharan African states, has the West just been taking their eyes off the uh, threat of Islamicists, or have they been defining the threat as if it's just local and not likely to be exported, not much of a threat to the U.S.? Well, so there is a kind of shared vision among both French and American policymakers, as well as the broader kind of you know Western international community, if you want to call it that, that uh, kind of views these conflicts through a lens of a kind of war on terrorism lens. That this is a war between jihadists and you know somebody else, and that somebody else are these states that aren't particularly you know well governed, and maybe they're a bit corrupt, and you know even maybe not that legitimate. But at the end of the day, they're not jihadists, and we have to protect them from being overthrown by jihadist groups. Yeah. So let's talk about France. Uh, they were the colonial power, and they've pulled out recently. Although maybe they're getting sucked back in. I know that there are many. Uh, French people of African descent who are very critical of Macron. I know that um, the vestiges of the colonial power doesn't always play well with these countries, but France was, will you tell me, more or less a stabilizing force for many years, and now they, what, have changed to a less stabilizing force? Well, I would say since 1960, when most of France's colonies became independent, so that's almost all the countries in the Sahel, the region we've been discussing, yeah. um, France has, has intervened over 50 times militarily. That's, that's almost once a year, which makes it probably one of the most interventionist countries in the world, uh, You know, very comparable to the United States in a lot of ways. The problem with that is that oftentimes they end up protecting the governments and states that whose actions are themselves responsible for the instability that they're trying to stop. And yeah. That's been the biggest problem uh, with with the current intervention, but also if you go back for the past 50 or 60 years, that's been a consistent kind of feature of French interventionism, that they are supporting states that uh, whose behavior is generating their own problems. Now, you mentioned the region, the Sahel, which I was not aware of until I started looking into this topic. Um, I was aware of different ecosystems, but the Sahel is about 11 to 14 degrees north of the equator, and it goes throughout the entire continent in an east-west or west-east line, and all of the countries that we're talking about so far touch each other, and almost all of them... uh, have a large part of their country, or at least a part of their country in the Sahel. Is there any, is it just coincidence that all of these countries in this pretty narrow band are the ones experiencing this unrest? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So the Sahel, again, it's, I think it's, it's somewhat problematic term, but we just kind of use it to describe about eight or 10 different countries. Uh, Why is it problematic? Because it's kind of inexact and flattens, <laughs> compares Mauritania to Sudan, which aren't that much alike. Well, that, that's just part of it. But also it's, so it comes from Arabic. It means the shore and the shore of the ocean of the, the Sahel. And it's, it's, it's actually supposed to describe the areas to the bit of the south of the desert. Yeah. So the reason why I think the Sahel itself has been experiencing a lot of this, there's two reasons, I think. One is its geographical proximity to other, to the Middle East and to North Africa. Uh, which has seen jihad, uh, jihadist groups kind of uh, arise. The Algerian civil war is actually a longer-term trigger for a lot of this. Um, the other issue is that the Sahelian states are a lot poorer than 
uh, African states along the coast or further south. I mean, well, there's some exceptions to this, but uh, which means that states with limited resources trying to hold together a vast agglomeration of of different peoples that are spread over a large area. And it's there are times when this has worked relatively well because there have been man- states have managed to uh, kind of co-opt or adapt their policies to a broad base of of kind of different ethnic groups. And other times they haven't. And we've entered a period where they, they haven't adjusted particularly well to that situation. Now, I know if Sahel is a um, imperfect term that the idea of contagion is also imperfect among political scientists, but the uh, head, the chair of the Economic Community of West African States described as contagious, the threat to the entire region. What argues for that coups in one state could be, uh, could spread to another state via this idea of contagion and what would say no it's more that they have all of these states for obvious reasons have similar circumstance and so you know when the input is the same the output is likely to be similar well there's there's been three coup d'etats and and one coup coup attempts within this area uh two coup attempts and uh, there's also another the president of cote d'ivoire uh won a third term in an election of, of questionable constitutional legitimacy um, so there's definitely a fear that you know this could happen uh, like to anybody. I would say though that the other aspect of kind of contagion that I think actually is somewhat legitimate is there is something of a demonstration effect, which means that military officers in one country uh, who see what happened in the neighboring country are either more likely to think, okay, maybe I can do that too, or the suspicion engendered among the political leadership, uh, which could eventually lead to a crackdown on you know military uh, on military leaders, may lead to military leaders preempting uh, that kind of crackdown uh, and right. attempt to kind of uh, proof the regime against coups. So I think there actually is a linkage. Maybe it's also borrowing tactics, successful tactics. Well, that's I mean, there's definitely imitation, and also the Burkina the Burkina junta has definitely looked at Mali and tried to do exactly the opposite of what the Malian junta has done, because the Malian junta not only uh, has their actions not only resulted in a French withdrawal, but uh, was, was uh, resulted in a, a regional embargo and sanctions regime, which is uh, pretty serious uh, and, and have, will have a potentially devastating effect on the economy. And Burkina Faso wants to avoid that. Burkina's trying to do a coup the right way? Well, they're trying to, yeah, they sort of are. Uh, they've been really trying to uh, make sure the relationships with regional leaders are, are pretty tight. They've been, uh, they haven't, engaged in particularly violent rhetoric about uh, foreigners like the French. Uh, they're probably not likely to invite the Russians in like the Malians have. Yeah, well, I want to talk about that. I love this uh, part of it. The Russians are all over this region. And in fact, uh, Central African Republic, the, the Wagner Group and Russian mercenaries, you know, some say they're basically propping up the entire regime. Uh, there is a rebellion there without the Russians. Who knows if that state will fall into disrepair? How'd the Russians become involved? Uh, I think there's a couple of things here. One, there's uh, there there is a history of Russian involvement in the continent, uh, going back to the Cold War, sure, uh, where the Soviet Union supported a number of regimes and movements that they saw as um, ideologically similar, but also beneficial in geopolitical terms, right. Uh, so there's kind of a pull factor, and this is true with the Malian government right now. The Russians are happy to participate in uh, seriously um, violent counterinsurgency activities the French would have never contemplated. Um, but Russian foreign policy in general is looking, especially the past couple of years, to try to undermine the interests of Western powers, uh, particularly France, uh, but also to some extent the United States. And Wagner, the Wagner Group is a, is a good vehicle for doing that. Um, but I don't think that's the only thing going on. 
So in the beginning, we said half dozen coups, probably a half dozen explanations. We spent a lot of time talking about the commonalities between all of them and some of the differences, but we'll end with this. A half dozen coups, does this mean a half dozen outlooks for each of these countries? Yes. <laughs> the situation in each of these countries is a, is a bit different. And I think, and without going through a laundry list, the situation in Chad, for instance, is, is very different. They're not facing a jihadist insurgency, but they do face, uh, there are a number of re- re- rebel groups outside of the country. Uh, and they're trying to come to kind of a, a, a political agreement that would allow the current government to maintain its, its authority. Uh, whereas in Burkina Faso, the government is kind of facing pressure from the outside to return rule to a democratic, uh, an elected elected government, but also to defeat the jihadists. And it's uh, and in uh, Mali, the coup leadership seems to have decided that it doesn't need the support of regional powers or foreign powers. It's going to try to go it alone. Their strategic shift seems to have been focusing on taking the gloves off in their counterinsurgency strategy, which means mm-hmm. uh, focusing on uh, killing lots of people in areas that the jihadists are operating in and hoping that will intimidate people into not supporting jihadist groups. There's also a risk that the North-South peace agreement, which was signed in 2015, could break down, which would add a whole other dimension of conflict to what Mali is currently facing. Uh, I would not want to be in the shoes of any of the Malian junta leaders at the moment. Their prospects, I think, are, are quite different than those in Burkina Faso or, or Chad. Nathaniel Powell is the Africa analyst for Oxford Analytica and author of France's Wars in Chad, Military Intervention and Decolonization in Africa. Nat, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much. And now the spiel. Over the years, I've been called a contrarian, which I deny the true mark of a contrarian. But let me tell you how I operate and how that may mark me as contrary to the overall sentiment. I read the available information, think about it for my opinions, then encounter the opinions of others that often plays a part in the available information. I factor that in. But yesterday, the news of Elon Musk buying Twitter broke. And I composed my own thoughts, which, if you recall, was really about the thought process, and then I laid those thoughts out. I didn't get to see what all my opinion-crafting brethren had to say. If you didn't know the order of events, you might look back at that spiel from yesterday and say, that's Mike, always being the guy who has to take the oppositional stance to everybody else, loves to be different. But no, I swear, I didn't know that almost every single pundit who isn't identified as a right winger would not only be appalled, but apoplectic at Elon Musk buying Twitter. I really didn't. The New York Times had about eight articles today on Musk taking over, wherein two of the 50 people they quoted, from professors to congressmen to employees, had anything this side of cataclysmic to say about Elon Twitter. Yesterday, they ran an opinion piece, Twitter under Elon Musk will be a scary place. Today, fearing that they were leaving out the part of their audience for whom scary didn't quite get at the dystopianness of it all, they commissioned a new piece by Anon Gerard Haradas to write, Elon Musk is a problem masquerading as a solution. Gerard Haradas was on MSNBC last night making his point. 
there is a feeling that people like Elon Musk propagate and certainly widespread on the fascist right today, that this is a time of censorship and control and suppression of ideas on the right. Elon Musk lives in a world in which the only kind of free speech is white men feeling Mm -hmm. free Mm -hmm. to say whatever the hell they want. Others didn't go so far as implying that Twitter might soon be rebranded as Volkischer Biobachter, but they weren't sanguine. Charlie Warzel, who writes for The Atlantic, wrote about the three scenarios of Elon Twitter. I thought they'd be, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Instead, they were the bad, the worse, and the beyond contemplation. The best, best case scenario Warzel contemplated was what he calls the weird chaotic timeline, which he characterized by, quote, lots of quick building, throwing shit at the wall with very little consideration of the consequences. That is better than the dark timeline or the return to 2016 Twitter timeline, of which he says, this is not a good thing. Twitter in 2016 was often an awful place where, quote, blatant vile harassment used to go almost unchecked. When the media, or as Twitter calls them, blue check marks, tried to perform a more neutral version of journalism than punditry, they also came to dispiriting conclusions. Like, here's a question. How did the Twitter workforce feel about Elon Twitter? Washington Post. Twitter workers face a reality they've long feared. Elon Musk as owner. Of course, the Wall Street Journal reported Twitter employees' reactions to Musk takeover, humor, fear, and hope. The Wall Street Journal, generally the only big newspaper, and I read the Times, the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the LA Times. The Wall Street Journal was the only one with less than dire coverage, of course. They do have a conservative editorial board, and they are oriented toward profit. The New York Times covering employees, their headline was Twitter employees search for answers as Musk takeover becomes a reality. They, the New York Times, generally mm, identified with the middle of the humor, fear, and hope emotions that the Wall Street Journal put forth. Here is the first sentence of their second paragraph. Employees said they had largely stopped celebrating the richest man in the world since he declared his intent this month to buy Twitter, scrap its content moderation policies, and transform the publicly traded company into a private one. But the Times did source one piece of data. It was a blind study of nearly 200 employees. And that said that 27% of those who answered loathed Musk, 27% said they loved him, and 44% professed neutrality. The LA Times, like a lot of other outlets, took as a given that freedoms of white men would crowd out the safety of women, minorities, and gay people. On the front page, you could find hashtag death knell for black Twitter, Activists will flee Musk's platform. The fear is that content moderation is the only guard against harassment and worse, and that is a real concern, and nothing from what I've heard out of Musk hints at his belief that Twitter has to balance freedom of expression with a commitment to reduce actual bona fide harms. He only talks about the former, seems to downplay the latter, don't know what he really thinks about them, don't know what he will do if the company that he owns with his name on it is a source for a lot of harassment or even violence in the real world. However, I do have to say that most of the analysis of the charge of censorship And Musk's idea that Twitter has been censoring people is to treat that charge as a dodge with no legitimacy or just Musk telling on himself that he wants Twitter to harass people. I would have a lot more respect if the critiques of what Musk might do grappled with what Twitter did do in, say, censoring stories of Hunter Biden's laptop 
that I think the fact show should not have been censored. Sorry to say it. I'd love to read a dystopian prediction of Elon Twitter that lays out its case, but also includes the words Tony and Bobolinsky, just to meet me where I am. That was not the game plan of Vanity Fair, which ran an article headlined, a reminder of just some of the terrible things Elon Musk has said and done. Service journalism. Among those things, he tweeted, quote, I'm thinking of starting a new university, Texas Institute of Technology and Science. The acronym is TITS. That was one of the terrible things. As the Times said in one of its disdainful opinion pieces, female Twitter users in particular ought to worry about whether Mr. Musk will bring his apparent disdain for women to the company he is about to own. Statements like the Texas Institute comment and making fun of Bill Gates' belly also prompted Gerard Haradas to say, we're going to have to learn to see through the fraudulent stories that elevate figures like Mr. Musk into heroes. I would say 4 million electronic vehicles by the end of 2022 and a trillion dollars in market cap. That's what has elevated Mr. Musk to hero. I think Jeff Bezos has the intellect and temperament to run the Washington Post and probably Twitter. It's important for qualified individuals to run important institutions. I think Bill Gates would be a fine guardian of many important public institutions. It's unclear to me that Elon Musk is the right person to take Twitter in the right direction. I also think, I don't want to reiterate everything I said yesterday, it is unclear that Twitter was going in the right direction left to its own devices. But that's my point. It's unclear. So much of it is unclear. Musk has made some concerning statements. On the other hand, he's not the comic book villain so many people I regard as smart would have you believe. He's not Lex Luthor. He's not even Peter Thiel. So it doesn't surprise me that Anand Garrett Haradas would write, though it does somewhat surprise me that the New York Times would allow the concluding sentence in his essay. A society that outsources the tending of its social interactions to people who behave like sociopaths is a society asking not for freedom, but for tyranny. I'm not asking for tyranny because I chafe at a full-on subscription to the regulatory regime of Elizabeth Warren, by the way. Don't sign me up for tyranny. And I don't know, diagnosing from afar your political enemy who has Asperger's, now called Autism Spectrum Disorder, as a sociopath? I don't know, to some that might seem like harassment, saying that we can't allow a person who has autism spectrum disorder to have a job in social media, which tends to social interactions because those sorts of people are somehow deficient. I don't know. That might sound to some ears as harmful, an attack, impermissible, not to me, and luckily for the person making the charge, not to Elon Musk. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pasco remains techno queen till further notice, until the $44 billion in funding goes through of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com. Oomperu, deperu, dupru, and thanks for listening.